Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Good evening. We're going to be in a couple of areas of Scripture tonight. Um, if you have your Bible, you're going to want to turn to Zechariah chapter 1, Zechariah chapter 1, as well as Ezra chapter 5. Now, we are going through a book, a chapter by chapter, verse by verse study of Zechariah. If you missed last week, listen to it. It'll help for this week. Um, we were just joking in the back about this not working, and it didn't. Love that. And now it's really not working. Um, Zechariah chapter 1 as well as, you want to turn your Bible to Ezra 5, Exodus chapter 34, and Second uh, Chronicles chapter 34. Once again, Zechariah 1, Ezra 5, and Exodus 34, as well as Second Chronicles 34. Now, um, like I said, if you missed last week's study, I want to encourage you, please make sure that you take a listen uh, to last week's study. It will fill you in on a lot of the history as we are studying this great eschatological book or end times book, the book of Zechariah. Now, some of you emailed me last week and said, wow, information overload. All you have to do is look online, grab those notes, listen again, and I guarantee it will sink in. Let me also say how thankful I was, Pastor Jeff here this past weekend. We were so grateful to have him here uh, and then share the word of God with us. And it is good to be back in the pulpit with you for Zechariah. So why don't we go to the Lord in prayer and then we're going to dig in. Father, we are so grateful for your word and so thankful that you've given us life. And as we sing, we sing to give you glory for your God. You introduced yourself to Moses, I am who I am. Lord, you define yourself. And you have told us that you're a God of love, that you're a God of mercy. You've revealed your forgiveness, your justice, your holiness, your righteousness. As we study about you tonight and your relationship with your people, I pray that you'd speak to us, you'd move us, that you'd change us, and that our life would be different because of our study of the Word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1. Zechariah chapter 1. Verse 1, in the eighth month of the second year of Darius. Stop there. Some of you are concerned. We haven't gotten halfway through verse 1. Have no fear. We will eventually finish chapter 1 about six weeks from now. (laughs) Darius. 
Well, what I would like to do for just a moment is just do a brief review of last week, and I'm going to put the big picture slide back up for those of you that would like to take a picture. This is the big picture of Israel's history. If you'll take a look and remember, pre-exile, we had a unified kingdom under Saul, David, and Solomon. It was a unified kingdom. It was the entire nation of Israel. Unfortunately, Solomon had a son who was not too smart. His name was Rehoboam. Rehoboam divided the kingdom with a foolish decision. And so there was a northern kingdom, which is known as Israel or Ephraim, because Ephraim was the largest tribe, and that tribe absorbed its name. Then there was a southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin. And so they were two tribes, and it became known as the, the nation of Judah because Judah was the largest tribe. Once again, we had the northern kingdom to uh, the north, the northern kingdom to the north, of course, would be Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is Judah. But Israel was naughty, very naughty. God sent his prophets, they did not respond. They were so naughty that God disciplined them, and these ten tribes in the northern kingdom were raided by the Assyrians, which was the world power at the time. And they took them captive and left Assyrians in the northern kingdom, and those Assyrians married into uh, Jewish families, and they became known as Samaritans. That is where the Samaritans come from. Now God would send his uh, prophets to Judah and would say, do you see what happened to your sister to the north? You'd better be careful, but guess what? Judah was naughty. And so God sent his prophets. You know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, he sent the prophets to the nation of Judah and said, you need to change. But guess what? They did not change. And there was another world empire after the Assyrian Empire, that is the Babylonian Empire, led by a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. We'll call him Nebi. Nebi comes into Judah and he raids Judah. Judah doesn't think that Nebuchadnezzar will do anything to them, and so they refuse to repent despite the fact that Jeremiah is telling them that you are going to go down. Well, guess what? Jeremiah was right, and they were taken captive 70 years into captivity. Now, take a look back at the screen, if you would, as we go to, in that 70 years of captivity, we have Jeremiah who tells them, Pack your, unpack your bags, make your farms. You're there for 70 years. While there, Daniel prophesies and says to them, listen, we are entering the time of the Gentiles that even Jesus would refer to in Luke chapter 21, verse 24, the time of the Gentiles, when the Gentiles would dominate over the Jewish nation. And then the Babylonians... Daniel lets them know, you're going to come down in just one night, and they would be overcome by the next, excuse me, they would be overcome by the next world empire, which would be the Persians. And Cyrus, who was spoken about by Isaiah over a hundred years prior to his birth, would come in and he would raid Babylon, he would overcome them and become the next world empire. 
And then Cyrus, he would make a decree. And he would tell the Jews that were living in Babylon, you can go back. And so there was the first wave post-exile of Jews that returned under the man, a, a governor by the name of Zerubbabel. And their responsibility was to rebuild the temple. That's what God had called them to do. In that group, the first wave that went back, about 50,000 Jews, was a young man by the name of Zechariah. He was in that group to return, probably a pioneering kind of guy, like the ones that went out west for gold. You remember the gold rush in the 1800s, and all of these people wanted to leave the east and go out to the west. And Zechariah was a young man who wanted to go back home, and their job was temple reconstruction. Well, they get there, and in about two years, the altar and the temple's foundation are laid. But there's a problem. They received opposition. And the the Samaritans that were there governing the whole area, they came against them and sent a letter to the new king of Persia, which was not Cyrus, and said, these Jews are troublesome. You better watch out for them and you better stop this temple from being constructed. Well, guess what Artaxerxes did? He stopped the temple from being constructed. And for 16 years, they did nothing on the Temple Mount. Ezra fills us in to the rest of the story. Would you turn with me to Ezra chapter 5? Ezra, like a journal entry, fills us in to what goes on there in the nation of Israel, there in Jerusalem, he's going to let us know now, 16 years later, what happens in this particular time. Look at Ezra chapter 5, verse 1. Ezra chapter 5, verse 1. Then the prophet Haggai, you remember Haggai, he was the guy before Zechariah. He was a preacher. He was an exhorter, and he told the people, you better get back to building God's house. You're living in your paneled houses, but God's house is not finished. Well, the children of Israel, they had a saying at the time. You can read it in Haggai chapter 1. It's not time to build the house of God. But really, they were afraid. They didn't want to build, and they were just offering excuse after excuse after excuse. Kind of like all of us when we're about to start a diet on Friday, and we'll say we'll start on Monday. (laughs) We're afraid. We know what it's going to cost us. They were the same way. And so, what did they do? It's not time for us to build. But Haggai also says to them, you got uncleanliness amongst you. That's why God's not blessing you. Haggai was an exhorter. Then the prophet Haggai, now take a look, and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophets, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Two months after Haggai would preach, Zechariah, the young man, would come on the scene and he would not be an exhorter. Oh, no, no, not Zechariah. He would be an encourager. 
He would encourage the people. In fact, take a look at the screen. You'll see Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1, once again. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, the prophet, saying. Right there in those names, we learned last week something about this particular book. Because Zechariah means the Lord remembers. His father, Berechiah, his name means the Lord blesses. Edo, his name means at the appointed time. And here in the names of these prophets is the understanding of this entire book. The Lord remembers to bless at the appointed time. And what Zechariah is going to do is he is going to communicate eight visions of encouragement to the Jews about their triumphant future. And he uses these eight visions to encourage them, to inspire them. You've got a job to do. And your job is just as important for the triumphant future of Israel. So get back to building the temple. Now take a look at verse 2. How I wish... How I wish every Christian was like this in the room. So Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jezodak, rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. They respond. Sixteen years later, they're living in complacency. Haggai and Zechariah come on the scene, and look what happens. They start building. They start building. There's no hesitation. There's no lack of time that they waste. They choose to hear the word of God and immediately respond to the word of God. And what I love about this, would you take a look? The prophets of God were with them, helping them. You see, I imagine Haggai in the back. Okay, bring that brick and put it over here. Take that mud and put it over here. By the way, chisel that out over there. That's what I imagine Zechariah to do. I imagine Zechariah going, come on, guys, you can do it. Bring the brick. Come on. Oh, yes. I love the way you stir that mortar. Keep on going, champ. You can do it. But not Zechariah and Haggai. They were not cheerleaders on the side or directors. They were doing the work. You see, we're all responsible to do the work. Every single one of us. Do you know that we can't do Harvest Fest unless you bring candy? Now you might go, candy? That has something to do with the gospel? Jesus said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And that he was using a net to catch people. Candy is just a net to give the gospel to children that come on our property. You see, all of us are a part of that. Now, if you were thinking that's a shameless plug for me to collect candy, you're absolutely right. Now, the question, will you be just like the children of Israel? They immediately responded. Look at verse 3. At the time, uh uh-oh, here we go. At the same time, oh, God's doing something. Tataniah, the governor of the region, beyond the river and the... uh, Shethar Bozani and their companions came to them and spoke thus to them, Who has commanded you to build this temple and finish the wall? Do you know what I know about the work of God? Wherever there is something going on for God, the enemy's antennas go up and there's a work of the enemy. 
Wherever there's a work of God, you can guarantee there's a work of the enemy. You see, Tataniah was a government official. Are any of you surprised that the enemy is using the government to attack the Jews? Think about that. And in some sense, we may jest a little. But we must be reminded of World War II. You see, the enemy will use whatever he can to destroy God's people. And Cyrus is no longer king. You see, there's a new king about three kings later. His name is Darius I. Oh, there's Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1. And his officials, appointed by him, just like our president appoints ambassadors, his ambassadors, Tataniah, were in the area. They had no idea about Cyrus's decree. It was 18 years earlier when Cyrus had sent them out. Take a look, if you would, at verse 5. And so, verse, excuse me, verse 4, Then accordingly, we told them the names of the men who were constructing this building. But the eye of their God was upon the elders, but the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews, so that they could not make them cease till a report could go to Darius. Now I need to explain something to you. Then a written answer was returned concerning this matter. Remember I told you wherever there's a work of God, there's a work of the enemy? I need to remind you of something. Wherever there's a work of God, there's a work of the enemy, but there is a greater work of God. Whatever the enemy intends for evil, God is going to turn it for good. It's just what God does. And so while the enemy is attacking, sending a letter to Darius, these people cannot be building this temple. You will read the letter in just a moment. God is going to use this for his glory. Would you look at verse 6? This is a copy of the letter that Tetanai sent. The governor of the region beyond the river and Shethar Bosnai, companions, they who were in the region beyond the river to Darius the king. They sent a letter to him in which was written thus, Ezra adds, to Darius the king. All peace. Let it be known to the king that we went into the province of Judea to the temple of the great God, which is being built with heavy stones and timber and is being laid in the walls. And this work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. And we asked those elders and spoke thus to them, who commanded you to build this temple and to finish these walls? We also asked them their names to inform you that we might write the names of the men who were chief among them. And thus they returned us an answer saying, We are, take a look at this incredible response. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. And we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and completed. Would you just stop there for just a moment? Because right there in verse 11, we see what every single one of our testimonies should be. We are servants of God. And we're going to do what he tells us to do. At the end of David's life, do you know what his testimony was in the book of Psalms? David, the servant of God. Not David, the king of the Jews. David, the servant of God. Not David, the mighty warrior. No, David, the servant of God. How many of us would like that as a testimony at the end of our life? 
Well, then we've got to follow the example of these faithful crew who say, I'm a servant of God, and he's told me to build a temple from Haggai and Zechariah, and I'm going to do whatever it is that God has called me to do. Let's pick it up now in verse 12. But because our fathers provoked the God of heaven to wrath, listen to the humility. He gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this temple and carried the people away to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus, issued a decree to build this house of God. Also the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple that was in Jerusalem and carried into the temple of Babylon. Those King Cyrus took from the temple of Babylon, and they were given to the one named Sheshbazar. Now let me fill you in. Sheshbazar is another name. It's the Babylonian name for Zerubbabel. Same person. So he gave it to Sheshbazar, or gave it to Zerubbabel, whom he'd made governor. That's how we know, because Zerubbabel was the governor. And he said to him, Take these articles, go, carry them to the temple site that's in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its former site. And the same Sheshbazar came and laid the foundation of the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. But from that time, even until now, it's been under construction, and it is not finished. In other words, they've let it sit there for 16 years. Now, therefore, if it seems good to the king, let a search be made in the king's treasure house. Let's see if they're telling the truth which is there in Babylon, whether it is so that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to build this house of God at Jerusalem and let the king send us his pleasure concerning the matter. I love their response. They say to the king, to Tataniah, they say this. Listen, our fathers were big dummies. They didn't listen to God. They rebelled against his prophets. They were carried off into Babylon. And now we're going to do the work that God has called us to do. We've learned our lesson. Tataniah sends the message and says to him, "Um, Hey, king, can you find out if this is true or not? Let's pick it up in chapter 6. Then King Darius issued a decree. A search was made in the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon. And at Akmetha in the palace, that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found. Anyone surprised? And it, it, in, in, in it, a record was written thus. In the first year of King Cyrus, King Cyrus issued a decree concerning the house of God of Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt. Now, no one should be surprised at what is about to happen. So he says, let the house be rebuilt, the place where they offered sacrifices, and let the foundation of it firmly be laid. Sixty cubits, uh, uh, its height sixty cubits, width sixty cubits, with three rows of heavy stones, one row of each. Let the expense be paid by the king's treasury, and let the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple, which is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and taken back to the temple, which is in Jerusalem." even to its place, and deposit them in the house of God. Now take a look at what God does here. Now therefore, Tataniah, governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethar Bosnai, and your companions, the Persians who were beyond the river, keep yourselves far from there. Let the work of this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house on its site. Moreover, he says... 
I issue a decree as to what you shall do for the elders of these Jews, for the building of this house of God. Let the cost be paid at the king's expense from taxes on the region beyond the river. In other words, Tataniah, you pay for the work. Whatever the enemy intends for evil, God intends for good. Not only does he have to pay for it, He's got to provide all the cattle for the sacrifices. Not only does he have to pay for all the salaries, he's got to pay for everyone's salary. Let me tell you what happens here. Tataniah wants to go tattle. That's what he does. That's where he gets his name from, Tataniah the Tattler. And when he gets back the response, guess what? It cost him his pocketbook. And he watched his money going to build the very thing that he didn't want to get built. You know why? Wherever there's a work of God, there's a work of the enemy but there's a greater work of God. Amen? Amen. Now, take a look back with me, if you would, to Zechariah. We're actually going to get to verse 2. Zechariah chapter 1. Oh, surprise, surprise, all of my historians. Now you're going to know all these people. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius. Oh, you know who Darius is. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, the prophet saying, verse 2, The Lord has been very angry with your fathers. Okay, we've got to take a commercial break. Just for a moment. We're going to leave our Bible study, and we're going to have a little commercial break just for a minute. Because I need to read this again, because I think it's something that we all struggle with. Take a look. The Lord has been very angry. Our commercial break, the anger of the Lord. You see, the returning Jews humbly accepted. They humbly accepted that God was upset, very angry with their fathers. And when we think of the anger of the Lord, it's a concept that contradicts what we imagine him to be a loving God. I mean, how can a loving God also be very angry? How many have ever been very angry? Very angry. Like, you were so angry. You felt the blood starting to boil from your big toe. And then it just kind of creeped up. And all of a sudden, your heart is beating out. I've never had this before happen in my life. Your heart is beating out of your chest. Your face flushes. And all of a sudden, it just you feel the heat and the steam coming out your ears. Anyone ever been there? Okay, those of you that are married are not raising your hand because you have the perfect marriages. Now listen, we've got to be careful not to associate the anger of the Lord with our anger. You see, our problem is our humanity, not God's anger. The Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul said, be angry and do not sin. So if the Holy Spirit directed that there's an anger that's without sin, then God must live in a place that can be angry but yet not have sin. Let me explain. When Andre and I lived in Liberia, we were infuriated. We were angry. We were so angry when a four-year-old child four-year-old child, he would, his job 
was to falsely accuse women standing in line and that were passing through a checkpoint. Four years old. And his job was to start crying and say, this is my mom. She's hiding money. This is my mom. Four-year-old child. And then they would take that woman to the back of the house and I will stop there. I know that four-year-old child. We were so infuriated and so angry, we did something about it. We started a child soldier ministry. We rescued 1,500 child soldiers. And you know why we did that? We did it because we were so angry that this child was being used for evil purposes. Now let me tell you something else. God was so angry at sin, he did something about it. He sent his son to die on the cross so that our lives could be eternally changed. We cannot look through the filter of man anger and attach that to God. The earthly tension of anger and love does not exist in heaven. In Hosea chapter 11, listen to what God says about it. Hosea chapter 11 verse 9. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. I'm God, not man, the Holy One in your midst. I will not come with terror. What he's saying is, I'm not like you. So don't compare your emotion to my experience. You see, God's holiness, his justice, his mercy have no tension with his righteous acts of anger. Let me mention Jesus in the temple. There was nothing wrong about him turning the tables because everything he does is right. And everything that he does, he's making things right. And he was so angry about what was going on in the temple, he did something about it to make it right. Let me give you another example. It's Exodus chapter 33. You don't need to turn there. I'll I'll tell you the story. Exodus chapter 33, Moses comes down from the mountain. And what are the children of Israel doing? They have made the golden calf. And there they are. If you ever saw that movie Avatar, they're doing the to the golden calf. Moses is so angry, he throws down the Ten Commandments. Moses sees, and God sees that Moses has got an anger problem. So Moses hears from God, hey, get up and go to the next place, but I'm not going with you. Excuse me? He goes, I'm not going with you because I might consume them. But what God is doing is raising his leader. And Moses says, well, I'm not going if you ain't going. I mean, how are we going to make it? Do you know there's enemies out there? Do you see what happened in the Egyptians? Yeah, I know what happened to the Egyptians. And remember, I parted the Red Sea. And the very next thing I know is that they're worshiping the golden calf. They've rejected me in a matter of weeks. So then God tells Moses, hey, Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to bring your journal. Come back up the mountain. You're going to have to write some things down. I'm going to show you my name. So God brings him up on the mountain. And God speaks to Moses and he says this. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, 
merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. By no means clearing the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the father upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And what God tells Moses is this. I'm not like you. My anger is always connected to my long-suffering. My anger is always connected to my love and my readiness to forgive. In fact, in Psalm 103, verse 8, the psalmist was right. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy. You see, I had to take a commercial break in regards to the anger of the Lord because some of us think that he's some kind of cosmic killjoy just waiting to strike us with lightning whenever we do something wrong. But that can never be associated with God's anger because it's always connected to his forbearance, his mercy, and his grace. Going on, if you would, Zechariah chapter 1. Let's pick it up now in verse 3. Listen to what he says. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 3. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts. And I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets preached, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Turn now from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not hear nor heed me, says the Lord. He's speaking to the exiles at this moment. He's speaking to those 50,000 that have returned. And he introduces himself as the Lord of hosts. In other words, here's what he's saying. I'm the commander and the chief of heaven. And I have told you to build a temple. I'm the commander and the chief. He's letting them know. He's letting them know. You work for me. I don't work for you. Because they've developed in their mind a little sense of entitlement. Well, God, (laughs) we traveled all the way from Babylon, went across the Fertile Crescent. Here we are in Jerusalem. (laughs) We deserve a little bit of something from you. Come on, God. What you got? Look what we've done for you. Excuse who? I'm the Lord of hosts. How many of you were in high school used to pray this before, because you didn't study for your exam? You prayed like this, Lord, if you just help me pass this exam. (laughs) You know, they say that prayer has been taken out of schools. As long as there are tests, prayer will be in school. (laughs) How many ever bargained with God? And you've gone to God with, look what I've done for you. I've done a mission trip. You should at least find me a husband. Lord, I have served you faithfully. At least she should be my bride. How many of us have made this bargaining chip with God? You see, that's what they were doing. Hey, we've come all this way. So we're going to build our houses because it's it's not time to build the Lord's house. They had a sense of entitlement. They thought that they deserved more. Remember, they were more concerned about their own things than they were God's things. 
Haggai tells us that God was slowly taking away those things. Flip over a page. Just flip over a page and look at Haggai chapter 1 verse 6. God says this to him, you've so much and bring in little. Haggai chapter 1, just flip a page to the left. You've so much, you bring in little. You eat, but you don't have enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one's warm. And he who earns wages, earn wages to put into a bag with holes. He says, you never have enough. I've been trying to get your attention for a long time, but you're not listening. So I sent in the exhorter, Haggai. But because God's so loving, he also sends the encourager, Zechariah. And Zechariah says to him, them, return to me. Return to me. Can I remind you, they've only been in Jerusalem 18 years, and they're already drifting away. Because return means they were drifting. Now let me explain. My son had the precious privilege uh, this past summer someone had uh, donated for him to be able to go to Hume Lake and their camp. And he was so blessed by it, and it was such an encouragement. But he tells me that when kids come back from this Christian camp, they have what is known as the Hume High. They're all great for God for about a week and a half. And then the girlfriend calls. Then they get involved with the friends. And within three months, they don't even remember that they gave their life to Jesus, that they're right back into the world. He calls it the Hume High. They're in the midst of the Hume High. Camp Hume High. They have given their life to God, and they've walked across the Fertile Crescent, and there they are in Jerusalem rebuilding, and they forgot God. Come on. Turn to me. They drifted away. The drift. The drift. Maybe you're listening and you're thinking about your spiritual life, and it's become a little dry. It's become a little arid. I'm not speaking to my Thursday night crew, but maybe sometimes you have a debate of, should I go to church or just... Go to Bedside Baptist. <laughs> That's not saying anything about the Baptist. I was just like a BB, Bedside. Okay, never mind. <laughs> should I watch a movie or should I read my Bible? In Hebrews chapter 1, I want you to see on the screen something so powerful. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, we have the Gospels, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So there's the point. God wants to speak to us. Now, chapter 2, a chapter down, after he proves the point, he says this in verse 1, Therefore, We must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard. In other words, the word of God, lest we drift away. Do you realize the stream of tendency is against you? That in the Christian life, the world, 
the flesh and the enemy are going to be like a strong current trying to push you downstream. And you, lest you drift, must give earnest heed and swim and swim. You guys know I was a swimmer in high school and college. And one time my coach, he put me in a river, a flowing river, and he said, I don't want you to move from this place for 10 minutes. It almost killed me. I was swimming with everything I had. I had to give earnest need. And I would look up and take a breath and I would see myself drifting away and I would swim even faster to get there. And then one time I tried to take a breath and I go, I, I, and then I go, can't do this for 10 minutes. We've got to give it everything we've got communicating with God in prayer because the stream of tendency is against us. We've got to get everything we've got to be connected with God and his word because the stream of tendency is against us. There's a constant thing that we can drift. We've got to return and give it an earnest attention. Now he also tells them, if you return to me, I will return to you. This is powerful. Do you realize that in this statement, God allows us to develop the relationship with him? He's always willing. He's always ready. In fact, James, in James chapter 4, verse 7, he would say, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now remember when we read Haggai. They didn't have any money. Their clothes were wearing out. They didn't have enough food. They didn't have enough to drink. Do you know what God is telling them? Go ahead. Try doing life without me. If you don't want relationship with me, okay. Go try to find your wife. Go try to find your husband. I was just talking to a young person. (laughs) I found her. Oh, that's awesome. What church does she go to? Oh, that's the thing. You see, God has called me to win her to Christ. Where'd you meet her? Well, you know, I met her. No, I know, but where did you meet her? Pastor Chet, it was the coolest thing. We were both getting beer at the baseball game. And the Lord, I, look, I just happened to look up, and there she was. And when I asked for her number, she gave it to me. It has to be the Lord. <laughs> Go ahead. Try to do it without him. See how it turns out. It didn't work so good for the people that Haggai spoke to. Why do we try to do life without God? Because let me tell you something. He'll let us. He will let us. Because he's allowing us to build the relationship. Draw near to God. You take the first step, and I'll come running. Do you remember when the prodigal son came home? Who was running towards him? The dad. When the prodigal son made the step to come home, the father went running to him. You see, if you want to do life without God, guess what he's going to do? He'll let you. But you're going to turn out having a Haggai in your life. When are you going to get it? And besides, do you know what the Lord of hosts means? It means the Lord of war. And our life is a spiritual war. And you know what God is saying? You want me at your back. I'm the Lord of hosts. And you want me fighting your battles. Trust me, you don't want to be out there fighting the world, the flesh, and the enemy on your own. I'm the Lord of hosts. You need me. 
You need me? But I want you to see something else. He's warning them. He says to them, listen, you saw what your fathers did. We need to learn from our history. Can I tell you something about your history? You can't change it. There is nothing you can do to change your history. The only thing you can do with your history is learn from it. I was talking with someone and they were just upset about something they had done in their history. And so I had a this little ball on my desk and I picked it up and I threw it at him. I hit him right here. I said, give me my ball back. Put it back on my desk. He started going on and on and on again about his history. So I picked up the ball and when I went to throw it at him, he went like this. And I go, aha, what happened? You learned from your history. The only thing you can do with your history is give it to God and learn from it. Every mistake has got to be given to the Lord. Every sin has got to be given to the Lord. And then you've got to learn from it. And there's two things that he mentions that he wants them to learn. He says, turn from your evil ways and deeds. Now, ways means roads and deeds means action. What he's saying is, you're driving down the wrong road. Take a right turn. Get off that road that you're driving down and choose to take a right turn. Because the only thing that you can do with sin in your life is make a right turn towards God. That's the only thing you can do with your, uh, sin in your life. Jesus even goes further. He says, if you've got sin in your life, radically amputate it out. Pluck your eye out. Cut your hand off. Get rid of the sin immediately because the enemy is a liar. And you know what the enemy is going to tell you? You're the only one that can get away with it. Trust me on this. You're the only one, I'm telling you. Everyone else gets caught, but you won't. It's a lie from the pit of hell. So he wants to tell them one lesson. Turn from your evil ways and deeds. But then he says this. He said, they didn't hear me. They didn't heed me. And what he wants them to do is hear him and heed him. Now the word hear means to obey and heed means to pay attention. So what he's saying is, wake up. Pay attention and obey what I'm telling you to do. Take a right turn. Go God's way. Don't go the way of the world. Just ask those that did it, your fathers. And where did it turn up for them? Do you know the best person to minister to someone who's struggling with drugs? Someone who struggled with drugs. Do you know the best minister of someone who drinks too much? is someone who drank too much. The best minister of someone who has an anger problem is someone that had an anger problem because they know what they've been delivered from and they never want to go back there again. Church, there is redemption. All you have to do is take a right turn. That's it. All you have to do is take a right turn.
Now, can you imagine? Zechariah comes on the scene, return to God. That's exposing them. It's exposing that they're doing things that God's not appreciating. And he says, return to me and I'll return to you. This had to sting a little bit. And I know when God's getting our attention, sometimes we feel the sting. And don't feel great. And we think God's angry with us. We feel like God's out to get us. He is, but not the way that you're thinking. I want to read something to you, and I want you to listen. And maybe you close your eyes for just a minute and think of your childhood. Listen. My son, my daughter, don't despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him, when you feel his sting. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. He scourges every son he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father doesn't chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we've had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It's Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. And I know the sting of God can sometimes be like, God, you're mad at me. You're angry. You're out. Yeah, he is out to get you because he loves you and he wants to change you. And if he's angry at you, it's before your good so that he can change you and mold you and shape you and give you the success that he desires for you. I'm going to prove it to you. The very last thing that he says in Zechariah here in verse 5, he doesn't say the Lord of hosts. He says, but they did not hear nor heed. Look at this, much different. Says the Lord. You see, he starts with the Lord of hosts. Directing, commanding. You guys, do you know who I am? I'm the boss, you're the employee. I'm the master, you're the servant. He starts with, I'm the Lord of hosts. But he ends with, Jehovah. See, this is the name of God to his covenant people. This is his loving heart pleading with them, remember who I am. I want to be in relationship with you. I've always initiated. I showed up at the burning bush with Moses, and I said, I'm Jehovah God. I sent my son. In fact, we know love because he first loved us. And if he's our savior and we're in relationship with him, we should have no problem with him being our Lord. That's why Jesus said this in John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. Our relationship with Jesus is proven by our obedience. Here's where we close up. Take a look at Zechariah chapter 1, verse 5. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? I love this about God. This is the ultimate I told you so. It's the ultimate, and I told you so is biblical. Parents, listen. I told you so is biblical. 
Even Paul used it. Remember when he was in the ship in the end of Acts? And he said, I told you people not to leave. I told you. I tell my kids all the time. When I go, I told, Dad, don't say, I told you so. I'll show you right here in Zechariah. I told you so. God even says, I told you so. I told you so. You see, the fathers had everything come upon them that the Lord said would happen to them. God beckoned them. God warned them. God even disciplined them, but they refused to listen. In fact, you remember when we read 2 Chronicles 34, I'm not going to take the time to go there tonight. He said, there was just no more remedy. I did everything to get your attention, but you chose to reject me. And they chose to do life without God. And Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed their children because they no longer had the Lord of hosts fighting their battles. You see, when God warns you, it's for a reason. He knows when you step away from relationship with him, you're exposing yourself to three great enemies, the world, the flesh, and the enemy himself. You don't want to fight that battle alone. And he says to them, look what he says about the prophets. And the prophets, do they live forever? In other words, the ministry of the prophet has a time limit. You see, God is slow to anger, but he will do everything to get your attention. And he may just be bare with you along, and you might be thinking, oh, I'm getting away with it. But eventually, that time is going to run out. And the ministry of his grace is going to turn into the ministry where you will need mercy. Finally, he closes with this. Look at verse 6. Yet, surely my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? Everything I said came to pass. So they returned and said, now this is what the people said when they were in exiles in Babylon. This is what they said. So they returned and said, or they repented while they were in Babylon, and they said this, just as the Lord of hosts determined to do to us, according to our ways and according to our deeds, so he has dealt with us. Do you guys want that testimony? Do you want the testimony that like, man, I should have listened to God? I mean, think about it for just a moment. You're in Babylon for 70 years and they go, we should have listened. They're in exile. Everything came to pass. And they're saying God was right. I'm going to give you two rules about God. Here's number one. God is always right. Here's the second rule. If you're ever in doubt, quickly refer back to rule number one. God is always right. He's always right. Now, how many of you would rather have this testimony? I fought my fight. I ran my race. I ran in such a way to win the prize. How many of you would like to say at the end of your life, like Jesus, I glorified you on earth. I did what you asked me to do. You see, I don't want the testimony. I should have listened to God. I want the testimony. I ran my race. Church, let that be our conviction. Amen? Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, our God, we are so thankful for your word. So grateful that you've given us a warning in the book of Zechariah. And now, Lord, by your spirit, would you move?
Pastor Lester is up front here with me in the pulpit. And you need to hear the Spirit. And he's saying this, return to me. And I will return to you. We have to take the first step. And if you're here tonight, and you know it's time to return, then I'm going to ask you to take a step of faith while Christians are praying and get out of your seat and make a public declaration in front of Christians who will applaud you. I'm returning. I'm taking my step towards Jesus because I've done it without him. It ain't working so great. And there's a promise for you that when you return to the Lord, (coughs) he will return. He will. It's his will. He will return to you. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.